James Bond. License to kill. History of violence. I could be speaking to my own reflection. Only your skills die with your body. Mine will survive long after I'm gone. History isn't kind to men who play God. Hello and welcome to No Time to Die, the official James Bond podcast. I'm your host, King, James King. And I promise that will be the last time I do that gag. No Time to Die is the 25th film in the nearly 60-year-old franchise, and this series will give you unrivaled access to what goes on behind the scenes in 007's latest blockbuster outing and reminiscing about a few Bond movies from the past. We'll explore iconic locations, cult characters, and the craft of making a Bond film. Plus, we'll also take a look at that legendary collection of cars, that briefcase full of gadgets, and that oh-so-stylish wardrobe as well as having an exclusive first listen to some of Hans Zimmer's score. We'll speak to everyone you've ever wanted to hear from, from No Time to Die's director, Carrie Joji Fukunaga, and producers Michael G. Wilson and Barbara Broccoli, to those responsible for special effects, costumes and casting. Plus, Rami Malek, Leia Sidhu, Lashana Lynch, Jeffrey Wright, Naomi Harris, writers Neil Purvis, Robert Wade and Phoebe Wallerbridge, also Hans Zimmer, Billie Eilish and the man himself, Daniel Craig, who will tell us what it's like being 007. In this episode, we'll explore the themes and storylines in No Time to Die to find out about Bond's latest outing. But of course, the release of No Time to Die holds its own space within cinema history for very well-known reasons. Over the past year, the COVID-19 pandemic has completely changed the movie industry. In fact, the whole world as we know it. Film production slowed, press tours were cancelled and cinemas closed. No Time to Die itself had to move its release date three times. But Bond is a big screen institution. No Time to Die was made for cinemas and that's where it was always going to premiere, whatever the delay. Here are producers Michael G. Wilson and Barbara Broccoli. Let's talk about the inevitable, the postponement of release, this crazy 18 months we've had. Michael, what does releasing No Time to Die in the cinemas mean to you this time round? Because it's going to feel different this time, isn't it? Well, it's very important that uh, people see this film in the cinemas. It was designed and filmed and produced to be in the cinemas, to be a, a cinema experience. And we really held out uh, against... Uh, other alternatives like uh, streaming and things like that. So we're very excited now that it's going to finally come out. We're uh, all raring to go. And uh, I think the, the public will enjoy it when they see it. So tell me about those meetings then when you had to decide that you were going to delay the release date. I mean, that must have been such a tough decision to make. Barbara. Yeah, it was a very, very, very tough decision. And, um, you know, fortunately, we have great partners. So we had long, hard discussions about, you know, what we should be doing. And obviously, everybody felt the most important thing globally was that we keep people safe. So that was the that was the 
the decision maker. You know, we just felt we couldn't release a film at a time where people did not feel safe going to the theaters. Happily, the world has shifted. And with vaccinations, I think people are feeling much more comfortable going to the cinema now. And we're incredibly excited to be, you know, launching the film in a theatrical release, which is the way, as Michael said, the film has been intended. I mean, this film is a, you know, cinematic masterpiece. I mean, the work that was done with Lena Sangren, who's an extraordinary DOP and carries vision for the movie, Mark Tilsley's beautiful, you know, production design, Suturat's costumes, the phenomenal locations that we have in Norway and Italy and Jamaica. I mean, this film has to be seen in the cinema and it, it has to be a communal experience first. You know, we have IMAX cameras, we've got fantastic score by Hans Zimmer. The film is a celebration of Bond and, you know, the 25th film and almost 60 years and most importantly, Daniel Craig's final outing. So, you know, we feel it's a big event and we want people to be safe and we feel now is is a good time to release the movie and we couldn't be more excited. And I suppose because of the escapist qualities of a Bond movie and the globe trotting of a Bond movie, audiences are going to they're going to respond even more, aren't they, after 18 months of being stuck at home? I hope so. I hope they'll feel that, you know, they're, as usual in a Bond film, that they're on the journey with Bond and they will be experiencing everything with him. And I'm hoping it will be a very cathartic, enjoyable and exciting ride. One of the great things about Bond films is how they tap into the fears and the anxieties of us, the audience. The best ones feel socially and politically relevant, from Cold War power play to cyber terrorism to media power and intrusion. I sat down with director Carrie Joji Fukunaga to find out about Bond's latest outing. Well, I think what's special about the Bond films is they, they do exist in their time, but not to specifically they're very much a parallel universe they you never really mention prime ministers names or world leaders or even very very rarely countries what was the biggest challenge you faced when making no time to die trying to figure out how to make this story um, compelling in the period that we had and to make it seem like it's continuous with the rest of the films but also exist on its own for people who aren't as familiar with the previous films and still be uh, fresh and new the first James Bond film was Doctor No back in 1962 and featured Bond on a quest to track down a scientist determined to ruin the US space program. Why have you disobeyed my strictest rule and come in daylight? I had to. Bond came to see me this morning. Yes, I know. I gave orders that he should be killed. Why is he still alive? Well, that was nearly 60 years ago. So how do you keep the franchise fresh? I asked Michael G. Wilson and Barbara Broccoli. We're always contemporary. We're of the moment. When we start out to think about what kind of a story we might tell, what kind of a situation Bob might go through, we look to see what, try to predict what's going to be a problem that will be current and on everyone's mind and people will take seriously. That's the kind of basis for the caper. Um, we've also managed to do it by recasting Bond through the years, and everyone that's done it has brought something new and different and unique to the character. 
uh, to the interpretation of the character. So, uh, in a way, it keeps it uh, fresh and, and rather, you know, evolving all the time. And I think, you know, when you talk about the relevance of the character, I think heroism is never going to go out of fashion. I mean, and I think we always talk about these films as celebrating heroism of the 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 regular person, the ordinary man, you know. Bond isn't a superhero, and particularly in Daniel's portrayal, he bleeds, he cries. Uh, we like to celebrate, you know, people who, in everyday life, you know, do things for the the greater good. When you mentioned Doctor No, everyone immediately has images. They think of Ursula Andress, they think of Sean saying his name for the first time with the cigarette, and those iconic moments are throughout the films. And I'm wondering, in the, in the, when you're doing a new film, when you're doing No Time to Die, whether you think of, right, I'd love to have this as a big moment. Do you leave that entirely to the writers? Do you have input? Do you say, I've always wanted to see James Bond do this? How does it work? I think the um, writers and the directors are always looking for those moments, uh, discussing it with us, of course. But um, the, um, I think it's just something that is in the history, and they always like to see a connection to the novels, to Fleming, and to the previous Bond films. So um, they're always looking for spotting the right spots to bring those uh, elements into the film. So uh, in the new film, are we going to see echoes of previous films or stories? Or the, the real Bond fans are going to go, well, I recognise that. That's a little, Definitely. A little in, in joke. Definitely. There's, uh, there's a few lines that are in the script that, we'll, that Bond fans will love from the books. Um, and some wonderful locations that are described in the book the books. Um, and, you know, we always love, I mean, we consider this film to be a classic Bond film, but with a, a modern twist. And it's also vitally important because it is the, the fifth and the final one that Daniel Craig is going to be doing. So it kind of, it's a culmination of everything that his portrayal of the character has been through, and it ties up all, all the storylines. And uh, it's a pretty epic film, I have to say. We've seen Bond bankrupt terrorist financiers in Casino Royale and risk his life to protect M from traitorous X-00 agents in Skyfall. Each Bond plot is complex and detailed, constantly having to top the last whilst anchoring their message in modern-day anxieties and weaving in the franchise's iconic heritage. Neil Purvis and Robert Wade have co-written the last seven films since The World Is Not Enough in 1999, and along with Carrie Fukunaga and Phoebe Waller-Bridge, wrote No Time To Die. So I asked Neil and Robert very simply, how do you do it? Our process has always been to be uh, aware of what's going on, but also trying to think, well, what could happen? Where's the world going? What are we all worried about? So you're predicting things a bit. But yeah, no, it is stuff that you're researching you get interested in a topic yeah you know obviously you've got politics and what's happening and you need to reflect that in some way so hopefully we've done that in a non-heavy-handed way in the new movie and of course at the same time respecting bond as a character and respecting his heritage and you you can change him but you can't change him too much otherwise he's not james bond anymore and it doesn't feel like a james bond film anymore so there has to be that balance doesn't there 
Yeah, it's got to be different, but the same. Yeah, it's easy to... That's the magic formula. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, but not easy to do. It's really difficult. Yeah, because it's easy to slip out of the genre of James Bond. You know, it's its own genre. I mean, that's not to say you can't kind of introduce things that then can become part of the genre. So, yeah, it is a case of um, trying to be different but familiar. That, that thing, the strange thing that you're dealing with so many familiar icons, so to speak, for the audience, because people grow up with Bond. And so in Skyfall, when he opened the garage doors and looked at the Aston Martin and they play a little bit of the music, you know, it gets such a good reaction in the cinema. And it's just... You know, a man looking at a car. (laughs) (laughs) But it's not just any man, it's not just any car. No, exactly. One way to keep Bond cutting edge is to hire the hottest writer in the business. Phoebe Wallerbridge, the brilliant brains behind Fleabag and Killing Eve, is the newest recruit to the Bond writing team. Hi, Phoebe, how are you? I'm good, how are you? Very good. I heard the other day that your favourite words in the English language is trumpet. So please tell me that you managed to get the word trumpet into No Time to Die. Oh, how I tried. Oh, how I tried. Fortunately, I don't think trumpet made the cut, um, unless something has been re-edited. How did you get involved in the first place? This is an amazing project to, to get on board, isn't it? Yeah, it still hits me even now, how extraordinary it is. Barbara Broccoli got in touch and said, you know, would I consider reading the script and coming in and having a conversation with them and see what my thoughts were and just kind of throw some ideas around. So I was like, hell yes. And so I read the script and it was fantastic. And then I went in and met Michael and Barbara and Carrie for a meeting. And I know that I think it was Daniel who had recommended me I believe. So this is something that that not everyone's going to know about when it comes to script writing especially on blockbuster films is that you have a script but then other writers are sometimes brought on just to add little bits here and there is that the case with you the script was written but you came on board just to I guess the word would be tweak to tweak a few things. Yeah exactly I think you know, I think it's important to say that the film was, it was there and the story had been broken and a lot of it was already there. And, you know, Robert Wade and Neil Purvis had been working on it for a really long time. And then just before me, there was Scott Burns who'd had a, a take on it and Carrie, you know, was a writer on it as well to the end. And so there's, you know, a huge amount of work had gone into it before I was there. And of course, Daniel, who's got really brilliant uh, instincts, was across it from the very beginning. So I was sort of there just to pitch ideas and scenes and dialogue for something that was already, you know, had already manifested into closely to the film that you'll see on the screens but you know they were really ambitious it's such an ambitious team and everyone wanted to keep pushing and keep digging and keep finding you know the more surprising elements or you know an emotional element or you know how it can be like more fun or slick or how it can turn on a dime more so it was more of those sorts of conversations but it was incredibly fun and it's it's a real real um privilege to come on something that's already there as well because I think actually breaking a story in the first place is one of the hardest things to do once there's already a script it's so easy to kind of move things around and try things out and put things out put things to the side and bring them back in but all all that work had already been done so yeah I had the fun bit. (laughs) You know that your fans are going to be picking apart this script trying to spot your lines trying to spot the gags that they'll go yeah that's Phoebe's that's obviously Phoebe's. (laughs) Yeah I know I, I well it will be really interesting to see which ones they, they pick out. It will be 
really interesting. I think there were some things like I've lost sight on that as we were going through as well, because so much of it was shared, but it will be really funny. And I think it may be a surprise to some people. The, the uh, bits that I ended up working on are not, I think, the bits that people were expecting me to work on and vice versa. <laughs> Six actors have played Eon's official James Bond on the big screen. The late great Sean Connery starting things in 1962 all the way through to Daniel Craig, whose first film was in 2006. Sean and Daniel perhaps come from a similar angle. Bond is this no-nonsense blunt killer, whilst Roger Moore introduced a lighter mood of suave quips and safari suits. In the middle were George Lazenby, Timothy Dalton and Pierce Brosnan. Smooth but tough when they needed to be. And it's all about that slight reinvention and little tweaks with each new actor. Although when Daniel Craig came on board, he wanted to push things even further than usual. The deal was, I, I said to Barbara and Michael when I did it, I can't do, this is before I'd read the script, and I was very, <laughs> so arrogant, ridiculous. But I just said, I can't do an impression of something that's gone before. I can't recreate what you've done before. Brilliant though that is, and that's, and I'm a fan, so I'm like, you know, I said, I can't do it. I can't, I can't come in and try and be something that, you know, people expect. I can come in and try and reinvent it because that to me is fascinating and interesting. And instead of them sort of saying, thanks very much, bye, they went, yeah, that's exactly what we want you to do. So how has Daniel Craig's Bond changed over his five films? I asked screenwriters Robert Wade and Neil Purvis. Uh, you know, Roger Moore was perfect in the 70s, you know, and he he didn't take the killing seriously. But obviously, I think Daniel, you know, he, he was really good to make Bond feel like a real person. So we, we definitely, I mean, after Die Another Day, which went, you know, it was a big over-the-top movie. Um, the uh, and that was nothing to do with Pierce. It was it was just when it, he was the incumbent. It was very glamorous and sort of, well, as I say, over the top. It was just right. It just seemed right to get back to basics. And and so Daniel was fantastic in that way. And it, that's meant that we've had because we had a starting point with him. It's interesting, actually, the word reboot didn't exist at that time. I mean, it was a computer term, but it was ne I, we never, we'd never heard of it. We didn't know that we were doing a reboot. But definitely with the Daniel tenure, there's been a range of journeys for him to go through. So obviously, Skyfall, you know, be killing Judy Dench um, was a really big thing to know that you're going to do and that she's that that is the emotional journey for him. And so we've been fortunate to be around when there was a kind of shape to the man's journey. But we also, I mean, Casino didn't have any of the other figures that came into yeah. Bond. Uh, and so, so he was alone on Casino Royale, apart from M. And that also allowed you to introduce people, um, you know, as the whole series progressed. But it it was unusual, I suppose, wasn't it? Because the, that those five movies have been a series of films rather than um, just one-offs all the time, as you, you seem to remember them back in the day. Screenwriter Phoebe Wallabridge and producer Michael G. Wilson also gave me their take on James Bond, the character. 
I've always loved Bond. I loved the character and all his complexities, but also then just the timeless classiness of him, which is why I think he's lasted so long, because he is classy in amongst everything else. And when that's done right, it is timeless. Sean Connery was my, um, was my big one. I think one of my like really early memories was seeing the seagull suit when he comes out in a kind of snorkel suit with a seagull on his yeah. head. I think I was quite young when I saw that. And then, he, and then he steps out of it in like a crisp, beautiful tuxedo. And I was like, that is outrageous. <laughs> but like character wise, and also from the filmmaking point of view, which is how much fun everyone was having. So yeah, I did. And then I think, you know, it really did take a turn with the Casino Royale when it, and just at the right time, you know, just when we needed, when someone is relentlessly, impenetrably sort of, on top of it and in control and not emotionless, but kind of emotionally held that it came right at a time when we wanted just a little bit more of a peek behind the curtain. And I think that's what's so, what Daniel does so brilliantly. There's the promise of learning something about this man all the time in his performances. And yet he can just give it to us in a flash. And then we, we want so much more and then it's gone. Certainly evolved from a guy who came out of the military, took on the job, was, kind of impervious to uh, situate emotions and things like that, then fell in love. And it, uh, it was um, something that affected him. And I mean, he was probably at that point thinking about retiring and, and even then. And then it turned out that he felt betrayed and it turned him into, you know, hardened him a great deal, gave him a very tough outer, you know, coating. And he's been going through these films in a way, peeling back that uh, hardness, uh, developing his uh, humanity. And finally, in the last film, decided just not to kill the villain and just turn him in and retire and hopefully go off into the sunset and have a good life, of course. For James Bond, that doesn't happen. Not easily, anyway. <laughs> Vesper Lind in Casino Royale is one of the few characters Bond truly fell in love with, but it also led to perhaps the biggest betrayal in the franchise's history. You're not going to let me in there, are you? You've got your armour back on. I have no armour left. You stripped it from me. Whatever is left of me, whatever I am, I'm yours. In Spectre, we saw him fall in love again, this time with Dr. Madeline Swan. And by coming back for No Time to Die, she's one of the few Bond women to ever make a significant reappearance. I asked Leia Sidhu, who plays Madeline, why her character has returned. I think that um, it's also because of Bond and we needed Madeleine also to to tell um, Bond's uh, story. I mean, it was I think it was important to see Bond in love again because he had this uh, relationship with uh, Vesper, but she betrayed him. And this time I think she's the she's the real love in a way. So, yeah, it's 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 really I think that the film is also yeah, it's it's a love story. It's a, the story between the two of them. And um, so it's, it's very unusual for a Bond film to see, uh, to see James Bond in love, right? 
And I think it's quite modern, in a way. Do those blue eyes still recognize you? What's different about this film compared to Spectre? I would say that in this film, it's even more psychological and more emotional. And I think that it's something that uh, Daniel, as a James Bond, really like uh, um, created with this character. He, he, he created a character that is m more vulnerable and who has flaws. And, and I think that's what we like as an audience. And it's true that James Bond is like a, and an, it's, it's not a real world, right? Uh, but what we like is that in this world that is not real, we can relate to the characters. Bond has been a well-known womanizer for all of his big screen life. So how significant is it to see him fall in love? Here are screenwriters Neil Purvis and Robert Wade. I think that, that at the end of Casino, he realises that he can't have a normal relationship uh, and he can't have love. He's also realised that he knows what he's protecting now. So that gave you a, a kind of starting position to then move forward. The journey for Bond in Casino Royale is that he's an orphan. He's loyal to Her Majesty, and it, but it's basically he doesn't really understand life and then he meets this other orphan and he they fall in love and he suddenly apprehends what life could be like actually you know if you were an orphan you've never really known a loving environment and then suddenly you you, you start you know you could have your own little life and so he understands what life is about and then it's taken away because he discovers that she was always deceiving him, even though she may well have actually loved him. But he dons his armour. I mean, it's a line in the film, but it, that's when it happens. And he says, the bitch is dead now, which is the, the last line of the novel. And it was very important to us that that be in the film. So he now understands that this is real life, that people do fall in love. He can never allow himself to do that because it made him vulnerable and he cannot go around the world protecting that. And so finally in Spectre, he meets someone and he starts to think, maybe I can walk away from this for love. So that's the journey. At the end of um, Casino Royale, the book he's he's determined to find the and, and hunt down the arm that holds the whip and gun yeah that's his this, quest isn't yeah, it yeah that's the arc that we're trying to uh, get to on this is that he he can't stop doing that even if he's got a relationship and even if he's retired i should have known I'd leave alone Just goes to show 
that the blood you bleed is just the blood you own While the films have modernised, they've also kept many of those classic characters from both Ian Fleming's novels and the early movie adaptations. The last few have seen the reintroduction of Q, Moneypenny and Tanner. So was this a nod to the past? I asked Daniel Craig. I'm a fan of all of the tropes. I'm a fan of all of the characters. One of the biggest thrills for me was when we started doing Skyfall and we were like, we wanted Moneypenny, we wanted Q and, you know, we we're killing off Judy, God, God forgive me. Um, and we, but we brought in, um, we brought in Rafe, and it's like those, those are so exciting because that meant we could reintroduce those characters, the characters I'd met when I was a kid and had been thrilled by. We could reintroduce them, and Ben came in, and Naomi came in, and Rafe came in, and, and just created them like you know, so that you know, the whole people that that are, that that are funny and entertaining and moving and all of those things. That 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 that's kind of. That's a change without changing it, if that makes sense. Let's look back at some of those key characters who have been reimagined and rebooted. Money, Penny. What gives? Me, given an ounce of encouragement. Mm. You never take me to dinner looking like this, James. You never take me to dinner, period. Uh, I would, you know. Money, Penny, I'm devastated. What would I ever do without you? As far as I can remember, James, you've never had me. I've been reassigned. Temporary suspension from field work. Really? Mm. Something to do with killing 007. Well, you gave it your best shot. It was hardly my best shot. Not sure I can survive your best. Doubt you'll get the chance. Thank you. Sorry about the leg. Huh. Skiing. If I mention he's 007, but a perfect marksman isn't really supposed to shoot his own boss. Magnificent, isn't she? Zero to 60 in 3.2 seconds. Fully bulletproof, a few little tricks up her sleeve. It's a shame, really, she was meant for you, but she's been reassigned to 009. But you can have this. Does it do anything? It tells the time. Yeah, maybe not, but it jammed on your last job and you spent six months in hospital in consequence. If you carry a double O number, it means you're licensed to kill, not get killed. We're trying to find out how an entire network of terrorist groups is financed and you give us one bomb maker. Hardly the big picture, wouldn't you say? The man isn't even a true believer. He's a gun for hire. And thanks to your overdeveloped trigger finger, we have no idea who hired him or why. And how the hell did you find out where I lived? Same way I found out your name. I thought M was a randomly assigned letter. I had no idea it stood for that. After one more syllable and I'll have you killed. So I made an alliance to put the power where it should be. And now you want to throw it away for the sake of democracy. Whatever the hell that is. How predictably moronic. But then isn't that what M stands for? And now we know what C stands for. Careless. When you bring back a classic character, how do you then develop the personality of these returning faces? I asked director Carrie Joji Fukunaga. 
we have the whole cast, right? We have we've we've got M and Q and Money Penny and Tanner uh, in the MI six side, and we have Madeline, Doctor Madeline Swan, in terms of the personal relationship for Bond, and we have Ernst Stavro Blofeld as the sort of arch nemesis for Bond as well. So those are the sort of the cast that, that uh, had previously been established, and I think all of them have the continuity of their character plus. What what they can do, what how they participate, I suppose, in this story, uh, in Money Penny and Q's case, there's this new thing out there that's going to be threatening the world, and, and I can't really tell you too much, but M and everyone else are are working together to try and, and stop it, and eventually, as we were all kind of I think probably expecting, Bond is thrown back in to save the day. And I see that Blofeld's returned. Why did you bring him back? He's uh, obviously he's a character that is iconic for the the Bond franchise. That you know the the Blofeld is a is a villain that has haunted Bond since the novels. And when he came back, Inspector, he was put in jail at the end of that film. He was put into prison, and it seemed to me like that can't be the end of Blofeld's story. Uh, here is a, a a mind, an intelligent mind beyond the rest, and prison and the confines of prison wouldn't stop him. We're also introduced to someone extra special in No Time to Die, a brand new 00 agent. The world's moved on, Commander Bond. You were 00? Two years. So stay in your lane. You get in my way. I will put a bullet in your knee. The one that works. What do we know about this new agent? I caught up with the actor playing her, Lashana Lynch. Her name's Nomi. She's okay. a double O agent and she's very much there to shake things up in MI6, in my opinion. She's very skilled. Any skills that she doesn't have, she'll probably just learn on the spot and then pretend like she knew it all along. She's a good representation of where women are, very empowered, very opinionated and um, gives people a run for their money. How does Bond respond to a character like that? I mean, it turns into eventually a kind of mutual respect for each other because they come from the same program and they know what each other is capable of. But at the beginning, you know, she's definitely technologically advanced. And because he's been away for a long time, she knows exactly which buttons to press. She almost has like a a James Bond file on her shelf at home and has been studying it for two years. And now she's had that opportunity that she's able to sit down with him, tell him exactly what she thinks. And it's a real powerful moment. And that's actually what keeps things fresh, isn't it? Every few years, it has to come in and reinvent itself a little bit. Yeah. And what a great job they've done at doing that. You know, it's always like a massive event when a James Bond film is announced because people think, oh, what are they going to do now? Who are they going to cast? Who's going to be the villain? Where are they going to shoot? What are the landscapes? And um, it's always very exciting. Always. People will always have their favourites, but you can't deny that feeling when you find out the next one is coming because you know that it's about to be a special cinema moment. We Bond fans are a demanding bunch. We love things to change, but we also love a bit of nostalgia in amongst all that moving forward. It's a classic movie-making conundrum, really. We want the same, but different. That's no easy task. Bill Tanner is M's chief of staff, and four actors have played him since his first appearance in The Man with the Golden Gun in 1974. I sat down with current Tanner, Rory Kinnear, and asked about characters such as his, and that blend of pushing forward whilst nodding to the past. 
what they sort of brilliantly do, the films, is that sort of inching forwards uh, as well as holding on. Yeah. Um, and that's a difficult blend, isn't it? Yeah. And and each time that sense of okay, how do we how do we evolve and how do we bring these films into a you know whatever whatever the audience is expecting that year but at the same time you know resist completely throwing the baby out with the bathwater and uh, making sure that there is enough for those people that go to see the bond films because of what they represent historically and what they you know that sense of holding on to their childhood when they first started watching bond films as well as you know what does someone who wants to come and see a film for the first time sort of expect these days and i suppose uh, the 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 best bond movies will always reflect in some way what's going on in politics in society um they're contemporary mm-hmm. and again tanner is another vital part of that isn't he because he is part of the government you know what's going on in his world should also reflects what we're watching on the news. Yeah, and I guess you know, I guess in some ways, sort of a, a civil servant who has to adapt to each new uh, prime minister that comes in or each new boss that comes in, like he's adapted from from Judy to Rafe, and that sense of continuity, and I guess in in, in that sense of knowing what the rules are, so that you can inform the new bloods coming in. Yes, I think each each film certainly that I've been involved in has taken in contemporary storylines or contemporary uh, worries and I guess, yeah, use those for the narrative. No Time to Die also sees the return of Money Penny, M's secretary. In early films, she's more of a traditional assistant and was first played by Lois Maxwell, who incidentally has been Miss Moneypenny more times than any actor has been Bond. These days, though, with Naomi Harris in the role, she plays an important part in representing how society has changed since the 1960s. It was such a gift of a role getting to play Moneypenny in Skyfall because, you know, for the first time it was this real bringing up to date of this role and making her truly reflective of women today, you know, and women today are going toe-to-toe with men in all kinds of fields, all kinds of professions, and um, they are respected and uh, expect to be respected quite rightly as well. And so it was wonderful to have the opportunity to reflect that. There's a moment in Skyfall, it's the um, the shootout scene in the courtroom mm. and Bond just taps the gun with his foot towards yeah. Moneypenny and you just go, that they, they're equals. You yeah. know? And he goes, I know you can do this. We are partners. Yeah, yeah, no, that's definitely true. Despite her shooting him, actually, um, which obviously was an accident, but even that, that, I think it shows a lot about his, says a lot about his character, actually, that um, despite the fact that he does get shot by her, he, he still trusts her, still forgives her, and still willing to work alongside her. I mean, it's her decision not to go back into the field, but he would happily work alongside her again. Cubby Broccoli, real name Albert Romolo Broccoli, along with his colleague Harry Saltzman, were the original producers of the James Bond films. These days, it's his children, Michael and Barbara, who are leading operations at E.ON's London headquarters. Michael was a qualified engineer and a partner in an international tax law firm before he entered the world of Bond, whereas Barbara grew up on the film sets alongside her father. They tell me what it's been like taking over that legacy. 
there was a lovely line of advice that I've seen you quote from your father, which was, don't let other people screw it up. Yeah, actually, it's a slightly harsher <laughs> word, but screw it up will do just okay. fine. Okay, yeah, well, I mean, we, we understand. Um, on a practical level, what does that mean do you think is that is that does that mean that you as the family have just oversee every tiny element yeah i mean as he did you know he and harry when they started uh this franchise were very hands-on and micromanaged everything and you know when michael and i took over i think you know we feel the responsibility the weight of the responsibility of what they started and and everyone else who began this series whether it was Dick Maybaum the writer Terence Young the director everyone put their hearts and souls into these films and the audiences have come to love them so I think we take our responsibility very seriously and I think what he meant by that was don't let other people who don't have the kind of you know long vision who aren't uh, you know, in, completely involved in this series, make decisions that will change Bond in a way that might really damage Bond films forever. So it was like, even, but he wanted us to take risks. You know, he said, take risks. If you want to make mistakes, fine, you guys make mistakes, but don't let other people talk you into making mistakes. And I think that's something we've tried to live by. Yes. Do you think with each new film, what would he have thought of it? Oh, yes, of course. Um, and I think, um, you know, there's, uh, there's, a lot of, um, there's a lot of people we owe um, responsibility to, to, you know, not screw it up. And um, the audience is a big one. Cubby and all the other people that were involved in the beginning, the actors who've put their heart and soul into it, writers, directors. So um, uh, there's a lot of responsibility. And, and knowing No Time to Die as well as you do, what do you think he would have, have thought of this one in particular? Well, I think he would have loved Daniel. I really wish he'd gotten to see Daniel uh, because I think he would have just loved what he did with the character and also loved, he would love him as a person. He would love the commitment that Daniel takes on when he makes these films and how he takes it so seriously and how he gives it his all. And um, I think he would really love this movie. It's just still enthralling and it's, uh, it's such a ride. It's an emotional ride as well as an as a action-adventure ride, which yeah. I think is what makes it so great. And what Daniel's brought to the character is sort of unearthing the emotions. Uh, Cubby used to uh, say that he thought uh, Unimagined Secret Service was a very important Bond film and maybe one of the best written ones and, and its best stories. And Casino Royale being another one that he and Harry wanted to make but never had the rights to. Um, I think this one he would feel the same about. It has the same elements in it, you know, kind of a tragic love story, you know. Uh, very emotional based story about Bond Coming up in the next episode A Name to Die For Allies and Enemies of Bond James Bond We both eradicate people to 
make the world a better place. I just want to be a little tidier. We'll hear from Rami Malik on playing No Time to Die's villain, Safin. We talked about it, what would be incredibly chilling and truly frightening and scary and plausible. This is a Something Else production. Follow now to make sure you don't miss an episode.